Thank you for joining us today on the inaugural episode of Regulatory Ramblings. I'm Ajay Shamdasani, and hopefully this won't be the last episode. You're in for quite a treat today in that our guest is Bill Miker, and he was a Royal Canadian Mounted Police Inspector for 22 years. He currently lives in Hong Kong with his wife and two daughters. Bill was an undercover operative for the bulk of that time with the Mounties, and during the course of his life, he learned a great deal about money laundering, organized crime, and uh, where regulation and policy fall short. He's done myriad things in his life, uh, and it's it's a life that, uh, quite frankly, reads like a Hollywood screenplay, may one day yet become one. Uh, he's, he's been a bond trader and investment banker, and he's uh, currently in, in the consulting business. And uh, with that, I will turn to you, Bill. You're from Canada. What, what, uh, what's your home province? Well, I was a military kid. Right, so, right. so I was born in Nova Scotia, but then lived on bases in Alberta and Germany. But for my formative years, I, I grew up in Nova Scotia. Was there an extended tradition in your family of military service? No, I think it was more uh, coming from poor family backgrounds. My, my father was a first-generation uh, immigrant to Canada, like many. Uh, came, his family came from, you know, Eastern Europe. And, and so a chance to get off the farm was to, was to join the Air Force. And uh, so he did thir 30, 38 years uh, in the military, had a good career. I think he was better than he, he had ever thought he would have. And, and, uh, but along the way, you know, we got to enjoy a very typical um, Canadian military lifestyle. Uh, you have to remember, you know, certainly when I was born, uh, within 20 years of when the Second World War ended. So there was still a lot of issues and then the Cold War. So I grew up in that sort of backdrop, that environment. Uh, my father was, uh, was for 13 years, was one of Canada's NATO representatives and in the area that he specialized in. So, you know, being geopolitically aware was something that my father instilled in all of us kids. Education was a, was a big thing that he pushed. And I just, but for me, I, I wanted to have a different life. So I, I, I didn't join the military. Here you are. Uh, but I, I kind of, I mean, this might be a presumption on my part, but did, did he instill a sense of service in you that caused you to go into law enforcement on, on some level, perhaps? No, in fact, it, it was a, a funny, funny way. Uh, I, I, you know, as a, as a young lad, I just wanted to, wanted some adventure and wanted to have some excitement in my life. And, and so I always thought about the Mounties, you know, more than the military. And, and in fact, when, when I, I was working in London as a, as a bond trader yeah. after university and, and thinking, hey, I'm going down this road. My father was a commander in the Navy and here I was making more money in one year than, than he made after 30 plus years. And, and then I phoned home and said, hey, guess what? Um, I'm going to come back to Canada. I, you know, I had applied for the Mounties when I was in university. Uh, and, and they said, hey, uh, hiring freezers are over. You've been selected for a troop and we'll see you soon. And, and so my father actually tried to talk me out of it. He, he wasn't a big advocate of me joining uh, the police. Again, being an immigrant uh, and, and certainly out in the prairies, he thought the the RCMP was a rather WASP organization. Uh, he was Polish Catholic. Uh, didn't feel that, you know, he, he felt the sense that uh, if you're 
you know, Polish Catholic, you may not have advanced as far. So, so he discouraged me, quite frankly. Uh, but then once I made the decision to go in, I always remember something very powerful that, that he told me. Uh, in Canada, when you join the Mounties, everybody's trained in one place, Regina. It's, it's a paramilitary environment. You, 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 do, you train with a troop of 32 people. You're all in the same dorm. It's a barracks. Haircuts every, every seven, eight days, up by, up by six, uh, lights out by 10. So very much what you, you would expect in a military uh, environment. But as my parents were driving me from our home for me to go to the airport to, to take the six-hour flight across Canada to, to Regina, my father gave me uh, the only advice about going. He said, Bill, you know what? You've made the decision to join this, uh, join the Mounties. It's a public service. Uh, my advice to you is you're going to know uh, times when you're going to be tired, uh, times you're going to be maybe afraid. There's going to be times you say, well, why should I do all this. Hey, remember duty to service. You made a decision uh, to serve, then then remember duty to service. And when you know when you're tired, when you're frightened, you know basically deal with it, get over it, and do the commitment to the task that you've voluntarily chosen to do. So I've never forgotten that, and that's sort of the ethos that I brought to to my career. Now, you I mean your time in London did did that. The financial knowledge you gained aid you when you were working as a covert operative, you know, engaged in money laundering, but but also playing the capital markets for your clients or your clients at the time. I mean, did that knowledge help you? I mean, certainly most most cops don't have a financial services background. So I mean Yeah, no, there's no question it was a it was a foundation for me. That 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 has really driven so much of my career. And for me, when I came back, joined the Mounties, even the Mounties said to me, you know, Bill, we, we don't typically get people with your education and from where you're coming from, we'd come back and, and join the police. Usually the other way around. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and then early in my service, I went into the undercover program. And, and again, part of it is, Bill, not only do we not get guys with your background generally come into policing, we certainly don't get them coming into the undercover program, especially at that point in time, because the under program, undercover program, it was more focused on the grittier side. You know, it was drugs, it was murders, it was, you know, uh, the violent sort of getting underbelly. And, and so along comes me, uh, who's fairly Pollyanna, actually, you know, when you consider my background, that, and, and they, they said, listen, um, you know, you, you pass the selection for the, for the course. Um, and they told me when I finished the course, at, at the beginning, they didn't think I was going to pass it. And by the end of the course, you know, they said you were probably the, our top candidate, you know, who, who passed the course. Uh, because it's really a course in following instructions, a course in following directions. Uh, you know, when they tell you what to do, you do it. And, and lots of reasons why it's that way. And, and, but very quickly, uh, my first undercover project was buying heroin and cocaine in, in Vancouver. And it was a four month project. And I was thinner then even, you know, so, so I, I, I ended up doing at that time for that kind of project, a record number of heroin and cocaine buys and had to simulate shooting up heroin uh, with, with bad guys around me. So you, you, it's a sink or swim experience. Either you flounder or you don't. And that's part of the process 
you know, before we put you into more intense operations and where more money and, and more risk involved, let's see if you can, you know, carry the water as it were. So at that point, I, I was asked, what do you know about futures and options? And I said, well, I don't, I don't know anything about futures and options. I was a bond trader, but, you know, I was just flying by the seat of my pants, really. And, and they said, well, how would you like to go work for the, for the FBI uh, down in Chicago at the Chicago Board of Trade? Uh, and then we'd like to bring you back to, to Canada because we believe there's a lot of criminality going on in our, in our futures markets, in our commodity pricing markets, which is primarily out of Winnipeg. So I, I went down to, to Chicago um, because of third-party liability, I had to write all my CFTC exams. I had to write the Canadian Securities exams on futures and options uh, trading. I, I spent time down in Chicago on the Board of Trade in the soybean meal pits and the soybean oil pits, uh, seeing, observing lots, learning lots. Uh, Especially back then, before it was yeah, that was the open outcry system. Yeah. Everything open outcry, and 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 then came back and spent several years. Uh, with the, uh, you know, being a being a, a trader, so I was a I was a, a trader and a broker actually, uh, and you know the 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 irony is that that project never became public. But there's a reason why that project never became public. Uh, the bosses figured that I was probably going to do illicit or illegal acts with about 15% of the members of the exchange. Uh, I had a wire. I was wired up the entire time. We had wiretaps on the trading floor in a lot of the offices uh, of the people who, who we gathered evidence on and, and in conversations with me induced that or we deduced that they're involved in criminal activity. Uh, the reality is, is um, if they had have charged one, they'd have to charge everybody. And I did illegal acts with about 85% of the members of that exchange. Uh, so. If we had, have, again, charged them all overnight, it would have ended Canada's ability to have independent pricing mechanism for all our, our commodities, physical commodities. So that was something that the government said, no, that, that can't happen. So invariably what happened is, funny enough, the RCMP who was running that investigation, he became the president of the exchange. And so it was just quietly, Canadian way, let's just quietly clean house. Let's put in uh, uh, people that have a, maybe they don't know uh, the ins and outs of trading, but they certainly have the probity to, to do it. And, and that was very helpful because my, my covert identity was still intact. So I, I had my, I had, you know, federally incorporated companies that had operated for years. I'd paid taxes. My high school records, my university records were all changed. Pre-internet made it a little easier. Uh, so that identity was intact. And, and so I got asked, before that ended, how would you like to keep working for the Americans? And this time we've identified uh, one of the main money launderers for the Medellin cartel operating outside of Colombia. He's doing a lot of his money laundering through commodity transactions. And you know commodities and grains. We know that he's buying uh, a lot of grains from Canada and the US, shipping it down into you know, uh, Cartagena and Buenaventura. And you know cocaine bill, you know money, you know commodities. Uh, so we want you to sit on an airplane seat beside this fellow when he's traveling and engage him. And that was another four-year journey, covert journey. 
uh, of of getting to the point with the with the cartel where I was asked to uh, be their their basically their agent to make all their legitimate investments, and uh, and so that 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 ran for a number of years, and I learned a lot. And just like you see these free trade agreements, you know, the, this fellow used to he sent me a fifty-pound bag of sesame seeds one time to my covert office, and he's you know, can you go to McDonald's and Burger King? and offer them 20% under the latest invoice price because we'd like to supply all these sesame seeds. And the cartel back in that time, which was the early uh, 1990s, what you see today in Mexico, that was when it was just starting. So the, the, the cartels were investing and buying legitimate companies in Mexico that were already doing business globally, but certainly into North America. They saw that the North America Free Trade Agreement, NAFTA, was was signed and it was going to create this giant trading block, Mexico, United States, Canada. And the thing about it is the Colombians are saying, be, be, uh, go check out this, uh, this trucking company, this warehousing company, this logistics company. We'd, we'd like to maybe buy them. But we want, and they knew exactly. They were giving me addresses in re areas that I knew in Canada very well uh, because they recognized that with the rollout of NAFTA, uh, they, they, they could see which goods are going to be increasing because of tariff rates and the like. And so they're buying companies that allowed them to increase the pipeline of trade so that the uh, you know bonded goods leaving Mexico. So let's just use a simple example, a truckload of tomatoes. And it's going to be shipped to Canada. People have to eat. Well, within that shipment, there's going to be a bunch of cocaine and with the volume of trade. So that the, the, the bonded seal is on everything. Up it goes into the U.S., driving up to Canada with all its tomatoes. Along the way, sophisticated enough, they break the seal, dump out the cocaine, reseal it, and the goods keep going back to, up to Canada. Get to Canada, sell your tomatoes just like normal. When the goods come back or the truck comes back, maybe they have weapons in it or the cash, different ways. The cash and the drugs will never be in the same transaction uh, in that sense. Uh, and, and so these are the sort of things that happen. So when you say, you know, was my time in London beneficial? It was because I, I had that experience. And then... Well, learning the language of finance. The language, yes, the language of finance, looking at, uh, you know, the nature of the trader, the nature of the opportunity. And that's the one thing that, you know, after 37, 38 years of professional life, I, I, I like to ask audiences when I speak to them, I say, listen, what do you think? Give me one word that you think best identifies the difference between an honest person and a dishonest person. And for me, that word is opportunity. And there's a lot of people who just had an off day, a bad trade, or, you know, wife wants something new. Oh, I got an opportunity. Nobody, nobody's looking, that type of thing. So a lot of times I found that Good people do bad things. doesn't make them necessarily an evil person. But then there are others who are purely predators. And, and for me, um, I learned that I just needed to focus on three things. When I, whenever I was sent in to meet a target, and, and targets have included lawyers, they've included judges, they've included CEOs, they've included you know, drug dealers, it, it didn't matter, terrorists. Um, I just focused on one of three things greed, power, or ego. 
which of those needs or desires did I need to facilitate for my target so that he would have an interest in me? You know, one, one thing you have to understand about undercover, um, again, I, I used to teach on the courses and I would ask the class, well, what does undercover mean to you? People would always give the same sort of answers. Well, it means using guile or subterfuge to gather evidence or intelligence. Yes, that's all essentially true. But really, undercover is nothing more or less than relationship building. If you can't establish a relationship with your target, you know, if he doesn't like you, it doesn't matter how gifted you think you are, he's not going to deal with you. And, and so, and, yeah, and that's why, like I said, when I sat beside the, the, the major Colombian on the airplane, you know, I was very friendly. I didn't approach him hard on the plane. I, I let him watch me do my charts because I knew he laundered money through commodity transactions. So I got his curiosity. He's the one who made the first comment. And then I just used that to, to, to start the conversation. And, and you know, it, undercover is an illusion. There's no such thing as a magic, really, in this world. Everything's an illusion. And, and me using the power of the state, as long as I can articulate clearly what I'm going to do for you, Mr. Bad Guy, it's not your business to know how I do it. It's your business that I get a result. And, and so, but the power of the estate, of the state rather, allows me to, to do many things that shortcut 20 steps that a legitimately bad guy would have to take. I just say, hey, I need the money over here. And we, we just layer it and we protect where and how that money got there because it'd all be government funds. But, um, you know, but you still needed to have the language and you needed to make it so somebody was interested in talking to you. And, and so, you know, even post, not to jump ahead too much, but, you know, people ask me all the time, how did you go from your career in government doing all that to coming to Hong Kong, uh, doing M&A, representing SOEs, uh, running a listed Chapter 21 uh, fund? Uh, you know, I said, well, you know, there really was no difference. You know, it's all about relationships, developing the relationships, listening to what people want, and then being a provider. And, and it's no different in investment banking. A lot smarter guys uh, out there don't always get the deal. You know, people want to know I like somebody or I trust them or I can go out and, uh, you know, bet on the horses with somebody, you know, and, and, and that's something else that's very important to understand. When it comes to money laundering, forget money laundering as much, but financial crime in general. Uh, in, and I've, I've, I've done almost every illegal act or participated or firsthand observed that you can do in a public market. I've laundered money through public uh, companies, through factoring. I've, I've, I've provided uh, loans. I provided physical cash to buy shells. Then we do the pump and dumps. I, I mean, none of it uh, is, is unique really. But the, the thing about all of it, and in, in especially in a regulated market, it doesn't take place. The, the specific act may take place in, in the market. But 95% of the genesis of the discussion of what we're going to do and how we're going to do it takes place in a bar, takes place on a golf course. And, and that was 100% my experience. And, you know, a few years back, the global head of risk for one of the big five global banks said to me, you know, Bill, my biggest fear, what keeps me awake at night is wondering what my traders are doing. He says, do you have any solutions for that? I said, sure, just tell me where they drink. Because, again, you're engaging with them at a personal level and then you're dropping the hints that you're sort of fungible in terms of your morals. And let's be honest, the, the, 
you know, what drives regulated financial markets, you know, by those who, who, who are traders or bankers, they only care about one thing. They don't care about saving 500 jobs in Akron, Ohio, in some, you know, tire plant, if they're not going to get a bonus. All they care about is how much money is am I making? What's the size of my bonus? That's the only true metric that, that drives people. And, and if you're not making money in the bank, why does the bank want you? They don't. Everything is geared about getting a return on equity and making money. So typically, like I said before, I used to focus on the, you know, the triggers that I needed to appeal to. And it was in, a, in, in terms of a criminal mind, greed, power, or ego. Typically, it was always uh, greed or ego. And, and there's nothing in my life today that tells me anything different. Uh, that, uh, I see it every day. Yeah, I would have thought the complexities of leading a double life and keeping things compartmentalized and not letting one life slip into the other. And, you know, I mean, there was a movie starring Lawrence Fishburne from, I think, some point in the 90s where the lines between the two started to blur. I, I don't know if that ever happened to you. And was your identity ever, did it ever come close to being compromised? My identity, only once did I, did I was working in another city and some guys that I knew from the Mounties, just by pure happenstance, because they went there to see a big football game. And, and I was in a sports bar with a target and, and they come in and, and, hey, Bill, what are you doing here? And my undercover name was, was Bill McDonald. My real name is Bill Miker. Bill's a very common first name, so it's easy to use just for that reason. McDonald, same initials, right? Bill Miker, BM. But I, I, I signed everything WRM. Uh, William Richard McDonald was my covert name. William Robert Miker is my real name. So for those sort of ease of things when you're haphazardly or might be drinking too much, same, same signature all the time. But I, but I went by Bill McDonald. And, and so these guys in, hey, Bill, what are you doing here? And, and I had to kind of give them a look. Hey. Uh, and they clued in, you know, one guy came out of the undercover program and it dawned on him, hey, you're, you're probably here working. Uh, and, and so he goes to the bathroom. He, he followed me into the bathroom and, and another Mountie. And he said, hey, I'm sorry. I said, yeah, don't worry about it. So I go out and then the target said, Bill, who, who are those guys? You know, I mean, they pick up on this stuff. I said, who are those guys? I said, ah, I, I said, actually, I met them in a bar uh, a bit earlier before I came here. They were just in a bar, just shooting the breeze with them and, and just left it at that. But, but, I, but I had another time where I had my hand raised and I was doing something. And, and those were the days. Today, the recording devices are a lot slicker. But in those days, uh, I was wearing a, what's called a mini Nagra, which is Swiss-made recorder. And so I used to have it. Uh, under the, the, our tailors built uh, a pocket underneath the underarm where I'd have it inside the jacket. Uh, and then up to the lapel, they had this threaded inside the lapel where the recorder is. And I always had in my pocket these little mints because I could turn the on and off switch because the recorder had only worked for two hours. You know, so you didn't want the whole thing live the whole time. So uh, somebody's saying something. And I once had my, my hand raised and, and the guy, whack, hits me and clunk, <laughs> right? Hits the, the metal. And he said, what's that? Is that a gun? And, like, I remember, that, you know, the blood just drains from your body. And, and I said, no, 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 a pocket calculator, just a pocket calculator. And, but I remember, you know, it kind of rattled me because it so caught me off guard. It was so innocent. And the guy who did it, he wasn't a target. He, he was just a periphery player. 
And, and luckily nobody else, you know, kind of clued in or, or got suspicious. But I, I said, oh, I got to use the bathroom. And I went to the washroom and I literally just like you see in a movie, but I did, I just splashed water on my face just to, you know, get the, because it felt like my face was all red, you know, from, and, I, and to me, that would have been a tell. Yeah, well, in both cases, you, but, you showed you, you could think on your feet. Um, but, but to go back to the first part yeah. of that question, the, you know, we, we call it, uh, do you know how to turn it off or do you, or do you live the role? And it's, it's important to understand, uh, certainly in the Canadian model, and I think Canada has one of the genuinely better models of, of undercover, um, we don't look for people who can act. The problem with an actor, what do you do when you don't have a script? Do you know what to say? So we look for people who can role play. So if you're legitimately a drug trafficker, you're going to react a certain way if somebody doesn't pay you enough money or somebody tries to steal your, your drugs. You know, there's certain ways a real drug dealer will react. There's a real way that a, that a, that a muscle guy is going to react. So, so we look for people who can role play. But what happens sometimes, uh, you know, as you say, some guys can't seem to turn it off. So me and you might be out there, we're, we're, we're doing it. And then we're just two guys out. Uh, you're not my target anymore, uh, but you're with another friend and you're just out at a Dairy Queen or you're out at a golf course and then somebody treats you a certain way and you just kind of snap at them. And you know, people are like, what the hell's your problem? You, you, you pick up that guys sometimes blur that a little bit. Um, but, but we do a lot of screening for that after every long-term project. And I, I, there's very few people who did as much long-term as I did, quite frankly. Um, but you would have your psych assessments on a long-term project. You're supposed to have them every six months, but a lot of things about policy don't, don't get followed when you're operational. Yeah. But, but you go for the assessment. And, and I remember saying to the, to the psychologist, the four psychologists, I said, no offense, but... I understand why we're doing this, but I said, I kind of know the game here and I know how to keep things in check. I, you know, I can tell you exactly what you want to hear because I know what you're looking to hear. He says, yeah, you can. He says, Bill, that's true, but you know, this is really here f for your sake. And, and you know, what, you know, what are you doing? How are things with you? So I, I get the game. I, I actually took it as an opportunity to say, yeah, sure. I, I, I didn't play the game. I actually was fairly open about, about, yeah, this was my experience to date. Yeah, a little frustrated about that. Yeah, you know, home life is suffering a bit. And, and I, I, again, another thing I used to say on the course when I teach guys, I said, okay, how many of you want to do long-term undercover? So all the hands go up because they have to or they wouldn't be allowed on the course. Yeah. So that's a screening question too. But, but I said, how many of you want to do long-term undercover? So then I said, okay, how many of you are married or in a good relationship that you, you really like? You know, about half the hands go up. And I said, listen, the, the two really aren't that compatible. You need to really think long and hard if you want to have this career, really have this career, um, but you really like the relationship you have. Um, you get working as much as you think you're a dedicated uh, husband or wife. Uh, um, you know, when you get operational, you're going to be focused on that all the time. When I used to be able come home because policy said I could come home every six weeks for a weekend. Well, it's not practical when you're operational. But I found that there were times, okay, Bill, time to go home for a weekend. I, I, I actually didn't want to. I just, I'd rather stay. I'm in the groove, right, with the bad guys. And so you go home and, and then you're dealing with mundane issues when you get home. And, you know, your partner is 
frustrated because nobody's there for a year. And, and so there's, it, it does have a lot of that ripple effect, uh, no question. Uh, but but I, I really think it's more single man's life, uh, for at least the kind of work I did. Was there anything in particular that stood out about your career as an undercover operative? Funny enough, um, I, I, it's, it, it, it sounds a little bit odd, but... Um, you know, I, I, as far as I know, I'm sure there might be others, but as far as I know, I'm the only person who has a legal opinion from the U.S. Department of Justice that, that I can have sex on the job. Mm -hmm.